Okay, well, we are in the book of Joshua, as we have been for uh, a few months now. And as I've mentioned before, we're, we're in a section that can uh, feel a little bit dry in the sense that we're going to talk about um, property lines and boundaries. We're going to talk about uh, children of the different tribes. And uh, frankly, I'm not going to read through all three chapters here um, because most of it are names, which you can uh, <laughs> rustle through yourself. Or um, I don't know if you did this in your or do this in your Bible reading. I did this as a kid. I don't do it so much now. But when I was a kid and I had Bible reading and there was a lot of names, I would just kind of <laughs> you know, okay, I can't pronounce these. I just sort of sort of look at them and then I just turn the page. And if it's like a lot of names, I just kind of gloss over very fast. Uh, now I know a little bit better that I got to at least try to, you know, pronounce these names out loud or at least in my head. But this is one of those passages where you might be tempted um, to just gloss over it quickly um, because there's a lot of unfamiliar places and a lot of unfamiliar names. But uh, what we'll do is I'm going to trust that you as you as we spend time in these texts tonight that you're going to uh, read through or tough through some of these names. And I'm going to uh, pause at certain verses that uh, should draw our attention, that need a little explanation, if that makes sense. And Lord willing, we'll get through verses, uh, chapters uh, 15, 16, and 17. So just to set the context, um, the first 14 or so chapters of the book of Joshua have all been all about the conquest that the promise that God had made to the Israelites through Moses the prophet was that they were going to escape the slavery of Egypt under which they were bound for over 400 years and that they would enter into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before, that they would finally come into this land and be in the place God intended them to dwell in order to build a nation that would be devoted to the Lord and honor him and be a beacon amongst all the Gentile nations. And through the Jewish people, God wanted to and intended to bless the whole world. That was the plan. And so, as you know, if you've been here for a few months with us in Joshua, almost from the get-go, almost as soon as their foot's out the door of Egypt, The people are so faithless and unbelieving in the promises of God. Uh, It's almost a shock that they actually end up arriving into the promised land. And as we saw, it wasn't without hiccup that they eventually were able to cross the Jordan River, enter in, and uh, begin this conquest of the land. Now, on the one hand, the text has said that they were at peace, that they did, in fact, conquer the promised land. On the other hand, as we'll see, we've seen already, and we're going to see today a number of times, they didn't drive out all of the people. In other words, they had a military victory, but they did not have a victory um, in terms of obedience to the Lord to drive out all of the pagan nations that God uh, had used the Israelites to judge. And that is going to come back and haunt them. Um, But for now, we are at the portion of Joshua where the land is being divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. That according to uh, God's promise uh, to them, he was now going to allot these different portions of the land to the tribes. And uh, if you look on the map on the back of uh, that handout, you can kind of see roughly. There's a little bit of debate, debate about exactly where those boundaries are. So if you look at one Bible 
um, map. It might say one thing. You look at another, it might say another. So don't take that as absolute because we don't know where some of these places that are named are. It's, after all, been about uh, 3,400, no, 3,000. 600 years or so. <laughs> so a little bit of time has passed since the days uh, that this happened. So we're not quite sure where some of these locations are, but it's an approximation. So you get the idea if you look at that map. So in Joshua 15, we begin to allot the land for one of the most important tribes of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah. And they have a prominent position here in the land. If you notice on your map, it's kind of the whole southern region belongs to the tribe of Judah. Now, who is the tribe of Judah? Well, they are the descendants of the man Judah, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 49. And we're going to get a little bit of a, a background into this tribe and see why they are so significant. Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, who is dying, is going to be blessing all of his descendants, all of his children. And if you remember, this is happening in Egypt. This is before Moses. This is hundreds of years before Moses. This is before the Israelites became enslaved at the hand of Pharaoh. This is when uh, actually Joseph one of the sons of Jacob had saved his father and all his brothers from famine and starvation by a series of twists and turns becoming the second in charge of Egypt itself. And uh, in having that position of honor, he was able to save his brothers uh, and his father and all of their household and all of their property and wives and cattle and, and, and everything. So it's a tremendous thing that Joseph did. It's a wonderful story if you read through the last uh, several chapters of Genesis, how, how God used Joseph to do that. But we are now at uh, the time when Jacob is gathering all his sons and he is going to offer blessing. In verse 8, of Genesis 49, he gets to the tribe or the, uh, his son Judah. And to him, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Father's sons are his, his brothers. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, there's a lot of imagery here that's a little bit unfamiliar to us. This is, uh, this is obviously not just blessing, but there's a prophecy here. Um, the first part of it is about how even though Judah is the fourth born, he is going to be the most prominent out of all of his brothers. Now, it's unusual because in uh, many Middle Eastern contexts and in many contexts in the world today, the firstborn usually has the prominence and an importance. So the, for the fourthborn to essentially get uh, a lot of the blessing here, and if you read all of the other, um, <laughs> all of the other prophecies, um, none of them are 
are as good as the one to Judah, except perhaps Joseph. Um, but again, Joseph was the one that saved his brothers and all his family. But even he doesn't get the promises that Judah gets. In a way, it's a little bit peculiar. You know, why, why Judah? Why does he get uh, this blessing? We'll get to that a little bit in a second. But so the first part of it is that he will have prominence over his brothers, despite being the fourth born. The next is that Judah will actually be the, the, the line from which, out of all his descendants, the line from which the king will come. You see that there's an analogy to a lion, and the lion is, um, as we say even now, the king of the jungle. So there's a sense in which um, Judah is going to be a house or a tribe of strength and honor and power such that the king of the Jews will come from Judah. And that's a promise that will never be taken away. You know, the ruler's staff um, shall not depart and the scepter shall not depart from him. Um, the last imagery where it talks about binding a foal to the vine, donkeys called washing garments and wine, that's just a symbol of prosperity. That's a symbol of blessing. So it's almost like um, wine, which is this precious thing, he's just tying his goats to it and his donkeys to it. And his clothes are like, uh, he's using wine as water. So it's almost like, um, you know, imagine having e- enough uh, enough gas, you know, which is really at a high premium, and you're just using it to fill your pools and water your, you know, water your lawn. Now, of course, that would kill it all. But just the idea of like, you're using, you know, gas like water, just like, you know, you must be rich. Well, the idea here is just, um, he's so uh, wealthy or or prosperous that, um, that uh, he can use, you know, wine, like it was water, even to wash his garments. Now, no one would do that in those days. It's kind of a you know, it just would stain everything, but it's just that kind of blessing that has come to him. Um, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. That's even an expression of um, a person being in a physically healthy, blessed state, okay? So it's not necessarily saying that um, Judah will have a lot of money per se. Uh, these are uh, figures of speech to talk about spiritual blessing. And we know that ultimately this is going to talk about Jesus Christ. And uh, as, as you know, Jesus Christ coming from the tribe of Judah, when he was born, he wasn't born rich and he wasn't born powerful. He was born to a carpenter. Um, he was born um, in a very uh, humble estate, you know, with the animals and all the things that we celebrate at Christmas. He was not born in a palace with a lot of riches. He never once uh, washed his garments in wine as if wine was, you know, just flowing in his household like water. No. Um, so we know that this isn't necessarily that Jesus in fulfilling this was materially blessed, but we know, of course, that he was spiritually blessed, very much so. So there's a promise here. The tribe of Judah will be the tribe from which blessing will come and leadership and authority will come to the Jewish people and ultimately to the world. So going back to then uh, Joshua, why is it that Judah here seems to be featured prominently? And why is it that Judah is the tribe of blessing? Well, again, it's exactly to subvert our expectation. In fact, all through the book of Genesis, you had this theme that there's a long line of men that God uh, preferred contrary 
to the customs, contrary to your expectation, contrary to what you want to happen almost. We had it with Isaac, who was blessed over Ishmael. Even though Ishmael was the firstborn, Isaac was the child of promise. And then when Isaac um, had two sons, Jacob and Esau, Esau was technically the firstborn, and yet who ends up getting the blessing is Jacob. You even have, not just with Judah being blessed beyond his brothers, his 12 other brothers, in the case of Joseph, um, Jacob blessed Joseph's children, and he blessed Ephraim over Manasseh. We'll get to them in a second. Ephraim was the second born between the two. As we've been saying, this is, this is so that we understand fundamentally, even from the beginning pages of Scripture, that God isn't just looking for those who we think should be the ones to receive the honor and the glory, the firstborn, the powerful, the rich. God is frequently uh, choosing by his own purpose and plan those who are second, those who are not prominent, those who seem perhaps even the least of all. Jesus himself saying that if you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you must be least of all and servant of all. We need to be thankful because I am not the best, the brightest, and the greatest. I am not the kind of person, if I was choosing a super elite team of people to change the world, talented and smart and of good social standing with a good pedigree, born of rich or famous, powerful people, that is not me at all. And I'm thankful God doesn't just look for those kind of people. He's looking for faith. And sometimes he's even looking for those who seem weakest, who show just a little bit of faith rather than those who are rich and powerful and prominent. Now, um, as we look back at Joshua 15, then we have a lot of descriptions of different boundaries and things. And on your map, you can kind of roughly see the shape of that allotment to Judah. Um, And again, it's a rather large one. It encompasses a large portion of the southern part of of what we would call now Israel. Uh, And when you go to... um, when you go down to verse 63, now, after all the different tribes and all the different people within the tribe of Judah received their allotments in the land, you get this phrase. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now, to this day... We're not exactly sure when that was. Um, if if uh, Joshua wrote the whole book of Joshua, which he, he probably didn't since the death of Joshua is in the last pages, so it'd be awkward for Joshua to write the pages about his death. Um, but maybe someone shortly after he died would have, of course, finished this text, um, who was also inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're probably talking about towards the end of Joshua's life, um, perhaps a little bit into the time of Judges, but um, the Jebusites end up being a problem for Israel uh, all the way until the days of David. So here we're talking, if you remember, about 1400 or so BC, 14, 1300 BC. David lived at 1000 BC. So we're talking about 300 years before the Jebusites were fully dealt with. So they ended up being a thorn in the side of Israel for, for many, many, many years. Like we've been saying, 
the pagans in the promised land, they were conquered militarily. You could say even politically because their leadership and their government were conquered. The kings of the Jebusite were killed by Joshua and um, and the Israelites, but the actual people, they still scattered and dwelt in the land. And the Jebusites were one such people group, and they inhabited what the, the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem didn't become a capital to the promised land until hundreds of years later, um, David drove them out of Jerusalem, the Jebusites. So you can't, don't think of Jerusalem here being mentioned here as if it was the capital. I'm like, oh, they let these people live in the capital of Israel for 300 years. No, it did not become the capital until the Jebusites were driven out. But they would be, end up being a pretty constant uh, pain for the Israelites for many, many, many years. Now, what, what do we glean from this or what, what can we um, get from this? Um, when we read about God's faithfulness to Judah, despite them not fully conquering the land, I'm very thankful. When I read this, I'm very thankful because I know many have this idea that God will only bless me if I'm a perfect Christian. If I've driven every, you know, Jebusite out of my heart or something. Well, the fact of the matter is, if God only blessed you, if you perfectly conquered all of your sin, no one would be blessed. No one would enjoy any kind of favor from God. But exactly because it's of grace, we don't have to have any problem here saying, at least, I don't know, for me, I look at this, come on, Judah, why didn't you, why didn't you do this the right way? You know, if my kid um, did 80% of his homework, I'd say, you know, you're not getting dessert until you finish all of your, of your homework, right? That's a very natural inclination. I'm not saying that's a wrong attitude to have about your kids doing their homework. But if you only did good to your children, if they were completely 100% obedient, you know, none of these kids would be having dinner, you know, would be having dessert. And so it is, I read something like this, and I'm just thankful, like, no, they didn't do the right thing. But God was still gracious to Judah. It did not cancel out those promises or prophecies that Jacob made to Judah about the scepter and about the blessing and about the, the prosperity. It didn't, it didn't diminish that at all. But it does suggest, you know, thank God that, that he can still bless us even though we're not 100% disobedient. But is that an excuse to be disobedient? No, because it ended up being the thorn in their side for many, many years to come. And we'll come back to that theme in just a minute. So there's the allotment for Judah. Chapter 16 and 17 now references the allotment for Ephraim and Manasseh. And again, we got to ask ourselves, and if you look at the map on the back, um, you see that Manasseh had a portion on the west side of the Jordan and also on the east side of the Jordan. We already talked about what happened there with Gad and Reuben and the half of the tribe of Manasseh on the other side of the Jordan, that they saw the land, that it was very pleasant, and they had large flocks and livestock. So half of the Manassehites stayed on that side of the Jordan. The other half were on the west side of the Jordan, and you can see their land and also the land of Ephraim there. And it's quite a large settlement uh, as well. Now, who were Ephraim and Manasseh. You can turn, if you want, back to Genesis 48, if you like, or you can just uh, sort of follow along. But uh, as I mentioned before, Ephraim and Manasseh were the children of Joseph. Joseph, the one who had the coat of many colors, who was um, 
who invited the jealous stares of his brothers, who seemed to be favored by his father Jacob, though having done nothing wrong, um, his brothers out of their own uh, selfishness, pride, and ego, they capture... (laughs) They they capture Joseph, throw him in a pit. They're going to leave him to die. But one of his brothers says, no, 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 we should sell him as a slave. And his plan was to come back and rescue him out of the pit. But before before he could, uh, he ends up being sold off as a slave to Egypt. And that starts this process where the Lord takes Joseph through many uh, highs and lows to eventually become the second in charge of Egypt and then to be in a position to help his family during this great famine. So Joseph endures a lot. There's never any sense uh, of him doing anything uh, negative or bad or or anything that we should be critical of him about. He's really um, endures a lot. But you might say that one thing that he he had going um, not against him was that um, he, he had two sons that were born in Egypt. Now, even then, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that he had... They did kids there. His wife surely was not um, was not uh, an Israelite because they were, you know, he, he grew up in Egypt basically, or being ended up being forced growing up in Egypt. Um, but when it came time for him to receive a blessing from his father, Joseph asked instead if he could bless Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons, instead. And so that's where uh, you get a blessing in Genesis forty-eight verses seventeen through twenty. And um, as I said before, whereas uh, Ephraim uh, was the younger, he ends up putting Ephraim on the right hand, which is the hand of blessing, and Manasseh on the left. And this is uh, the context now, Genesis forty-eight seventeen. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father, Jacob, refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So uh, here we have now the children finally coming into the, um, uh, the land and enjoying some of the blessings of this promise by having, if you look at the map, quite a large chunk of the promised land between these two uh, tribes. So uh, over and over again, of course, God's blessings don't necessarily fall on those whom you might expect, Ephraim over Manasseh. Um, but nonetheless, God does look out for both of them, and they have a quite a large um, allotment here. Verse 10, though, tells us a somewhat similar refrain, Joshua 16.10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. So just like the Jebusites, Ephraim was not able to drive out all the Canaanites, another nation of people that God told Moses they must be removed from the land. Remember all of these ites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, they were all wicked people who would do things like um, sacrifice their children uh, to idols. 
by passing them through the fire. In other words, by sacrificing their babies on fires. Um, and so they were wicked people, and God wanted these people had um, to uh, to be wiped out because there was such an evil influence, and that uh, they were going to, if left alive, influence the Israelites. Now, as it so happens, that's exactly uh, is the case. Um, despite killing the king of Gezer, the uh, Ephraimites and the Israelites as a whole did not wipe out all of the Canaanites in the Promised Land. Um, now Ephraim ended up using them for forced labor and essentially they were slaves there, but that wasn't actually God's plan. God's plan was, look, either you drive them all out, get them all of the promised land. If anyone stays, they have to be wiped out. They have to be uh, killed. It's just God's judgment. It's not a, uh, um, it wasn't a choice for the Israelites to make as far as who do I judge and who do I not judge? It was told them that God's patience had run out for these people groups, so they, they are to be wiped out. This, their, their time is up for giving them chances to repent. It's it. This is it. Israelites, you go and wipe them out. But they didn't do it. And as we've said before, um, like with the Jebusites, this ends up being a thorn in their side. Um, turn, if you want, to Judges, which is the next book over from Joshua, Judges chapter 2. In verse 1, now the angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bohem, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bohim, which means weepers. And they sacrificed there to Yahweh. Then Joshua dies. Verse 6 through 10, look what happened. Verse 11, soon as Joshua dies, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. And they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked Yahweh to anger. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, you know, gods that wanted you to sacrifice your children in the fire to them, and that's what Israel did. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm, as Yahweh had warned and as Yahweh had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And we see God providing and raising up judges to deliver them, but they would fall into the same idolatry. So for hundreds of years, they would um, get in this trap where a judge would rescue them. They would repent for a little while, and then they'd be enticed by these Canaanites and Jebusites and uh, all the different ites. And then they would fall into sin because they're worshiping those gods, abandoning the Lord, and then God would raise another judge. And this goes on for about 300 years of this cycle. In other words, that decision to not wipe out the Canaanites um, here in the promised land in Joshua 
would end up causing them pain and suffering for hundreds of years. And then, uh, frankly, uh, even throughout the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, they constantly do it all the way up until they are uh, destroyed and, and nearly wiped out by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And then by the time of Jesus, of course, they're being, um, uh, they're, they're, they're being oppressed by the Romans and never again were a nation um, as such. So that curse fell upon them for many, many, even thousand years afterwards. Actually, it wasn't until 1948 where Israel was reconstituted as a nation. So thousands of years really has been the cycle. And even Israel today, they are not a a God-fearing nation. They don't operate off of the Mosaic law. So even to this day, so for thousands and thousands of years, they have um, been living according to the pagans, um, mixing their faith with the, the faith and religion of people around them. They've been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. Now, in the New Testament, there's a, a principle of leaven. Leaven is yeast. And uh, Jesus said things like a little leaven, leaven's the lump. Paul reiterated that kind of verbiage. And leaven was a symbol of sin. And just like how uh, these Canaanites were allowed to dwell in the land, ended up becoming a source of sin over and over and over again. Uh, I'm sure many of us can relate to um, having that that sin, that pet sin in our lives that we just kind of give a little bit of a pass to. We think we've, we've overcome it, but we just leave a little bit of a foot in the door for this sin, and it comes back at the most inopportune moments, um, such as it is. That is, uh, you know, the, the experience of the Israelites is in a way just a um, uh, a, a type of the struggle we face as individuals where uh, we don't conquer Canaanites and so on anymore, but we're like the Romans uh, 8.13 verse says, we're to be putting to death um, the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. And yet we know if we don't do it fully, if we leave a little bit of, of sin there, it'll come back and, and uh, become a thorn in our side again. And so I think there as I read uh, Joshua 16, I'm reminded I, I need to be careful not to play with sin. Even, you know, I think Ephraim thought, hey, I mean, it's just as good if we have them as slave labor, right? Like, we don't need to wipe them out. They can be doing stuff. All the, you know, junky jobs we don't want to do, we'll just make the Ephraimites do it. So we've, I've got a reason to keep this, this people group around. And, you know, sometimes it's the same thing with us. Um, you know, there's a cause of stumbling for us, whatever it might be. And we can make little excuses and justifications. Why? No, no. You know, maybe we should keep it uh, around a little bit. I mean, if you talk about Issues of like lust and pornography. Um, there can be many reasons to keep, you know, like a computer or in your room or, you know, a phone, you know, with you at all times, even if that's a gateway for sin. I know we live at a time, it's very hard to not have a cell phone or, or a computer, but um, just to make justifications uh, for why you can put it in a more tempting place than others, um, that's something I've, I've, I've seen. Um, you know, people do. And whatever your sin is, though, I think um, that's a very similar story or one that we can relate to. Whereas uh, we see here that compromising with sin, um, giving sin a little bit of a leeway, oftentimes it's just going to get you uh, at some point in the future. So don't, don't mess around with sin in that way. But again, like Romans eighteen thirteen says, by the Spirit, 
You put to death the deeds of the flesh, you or the body, you will live. And so it is, we can only truly kill something when we do it by the power of God, because only God can overcome sin. You know, maybe you think your own um, efforts and your own um, motivation and, and, and your own gusto is going to do it. Um, the Bible says, you know, if you try to do it by yourself, you'll likely fail. But if you do it by the power of the Spirit, believing in Him, believing in His Word, then you'll start to put to death some of these sins truly and well. So that is uh, Ephraim in verse or chapter 16. Chapter 17, we get to the allotment to the people of Manasseh. And again, you can look at your map on the back. Um, something notable, at least at the beginning, is that there um, it talks about Gilead. And so you have a reference to Gilead both as a person, the, the father of Gilead, um, but also they're allotted a place called Gilead. We're allotted Gilead. So Gilead is a person. It's also a place. You can see kind of on your map, it would be on the east side of the Jordan, sort of in the north a portion of that where Manasseh is. That was the, the land of Gilead. And it looks like he was allotted a very nice plot of land because he was a great warrior. Um, if you remember, Og, king of Bashan, was in that northeastern area. Uh, east of the Jordan. And so uh, he is uh, one of the notable kings on that side of the Jordan. And maybe Gilead had some kind of, um, uh, or I'm sorry, Machir had some kind of um, role in defeating the king of Bashan Og. And so to him, um, he was given this land. Um, you know, it's just a conjecture by, by commentators. Um, the real issue, or not the real issue, more interesting scenario comes up in verses 3 through 6. And we'll read that together. Um, Joshua 17, verse 3. Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hephir, son of Gilead, son of Mahir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, Yahweh commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of Yahweh, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with the sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. So um, <laughs> this is... Um, and uh, th- this is a staking to a claim to their what was rightfully theirs. Now, now notice this is not like um, like some social justice you know move that they are trying to um, advocate for you know women's rights or something like that. Not that that's uh, wrong or bad, but notice that their argument is simply based on the promise of God that this was what they were clinging to. Is God said to Moses, that we would have an inheritance. Therefore, all we are asking is that Yahweh comes through on his promise. Will will Yahweh come through on his promise? Yes. Would Eliezer and Joshua and the tribal leaders have been foolish to go against what God had promised? Well, of course. And so thankfully, what we see is everyone submitting to the word of God. 
That is the ultimate form of justice. That is what we are seeking at any moment of any day is for people, including ourselves, to simply submit to the word of God. And more than that, to uh, believe in the promise of God enough to fight for it. So they knew that God had promised something. That promise was their hope and their trust. And so, of course, if that wasn't happening or there's a threat to that happening, they had every right to go up to their leaders and say, we just want to make sure this is happening. And we have to respect their courage and bravery because, um, you know, it wasn't, it was somewhat uh, typical of many ancient Near Eastern cultures. They have a very low view of women. Um, and for women to be regularly kind of oppressed or ignored or set to the side, especially uh, if they didn't you know, have a, a husband or anything. But here it very much seems like the rights of these women were respected because they came from God. Because God had said something and promised something. And so um, here we have a very straightforward um, justice um, being uh, or a commitment to justice on everyone's part here. And everything turns out just fine. There's no conflict. There's no, you know, nothing bad happens. It's, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. You, you said God said this. He did say it. And so this is what you get. You'd, you'd hope that all conflicts were resolved that easily, that we'd all agree we need to submit to the word of God. And if, if you're wrong about that or I'm wrong about that, yeah, you're right. Okay, let's do the right thing together. Boom, done. Um, but of course, your experience in mind is probably that it doesn't always work out like that. Um, but that is the goal for all issues of justice is that we could agree to submit to the word of God and the promise of God. Um, Verse 12 and 13, we get a familiar refrain as we continue on the different boundaries. Verse 12 and 13, uh, we see this, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now, when the people of Israel, Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. So like their brother tribe uh, in Ephraim, so the tribe of Manasseh also um, has an issue with driving out all of the Canaanites. Now, what's different is what happens next. Verse 14. Then the people of Joseph, that is Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, um, those two tribes spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? Although I am a numerous people since all along, Yahweh has blessed me. And Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, Go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beit Sheon and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of jo uh, Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. So what happens here is uh, the, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh, they complain about the size of their inheritance. And if you look at the map, you're like, well, they got a pretty good cut of the land here, both sides of the Jordan. Um, and you can't really tell on the map, but it's very fertile land. 
So it's uh, the, some of the nicer land or the nicest land in the promised land. They got a large chunk of it, and here they are complaining about it because they need more people. But Joshua gets to the heart of the complaint. The issue isn't that there isn't enough land. It's that there isn't enough willingness to completely drive out the Canaanites. As we said before, this was not a matter of God hasn't provided enough. This was a matter of they were not willing to obey. Do they end up completely driving out the Canaanites? Yeah, Joshua, you got a good point there. We do have a lot of people and, you know, we should be able to because God said that he'd be with us to drive out the Canaanites. We should be able to tackle this problem. We got it. So do they end up driving the Canaanites out? Uh, Judges one twenty seven. Judges one twenty seven says, Manasseh did not drive out <laughs> the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put, out, or put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Furthermore, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. So, they did not end up obeying the Lord. I think there's a little bit of a contrast here. Here you had these daughters who were willing to fight for their inheritance. Even if it meant, really, I mean, Eliezer was the high priest. Joshua was uh, essentially the, the leader of the Israelites, a great conquering warrior. And he had all the tribal heads there. But for them they knew that if they wanted to uh, make sure to receive what the Lord had promised, they might have to face their own fears and, and have the courage to speak up and say, you know, we want to just make sure that you're going to hold to the word of God. You know, they're not actually asking anything extra, merely that they would hold to the word of God and for their obedience in the face of kind of an intimidating um, not an adversary, because they're all on the same team, but, you know, just an intimidating situation. They're rewarded for their obedience and their, and their hope in the promise of God and their trust in the promise of God enough to bring this to uh, the leadership. So it's very commendable for them to do that. Well, you now have this contrast that this, this great, one of the greatest tribes that received the blessing from Jacob and all these things, Ephraim and Manasseh, that when they're faced with a people who have been weakened because, again, all their leadership have been killed, their kings are dead, they've been, you know, driven out of their cities for the most part. Um, God has promised to be with them if they would commit to driving out the Canaanites. They have all this going for them, the promises of God, everything's set up, and yet they have this issue of not being willing to completely obey the Lord, to completely trust the promise of God to fear God and love God enough to say, you know, we need to finish what God has commanded us to do. And so they really didn't have any reason not to be able to do this. I mean, it's an excuse to say, oh, those, you know, those Canaanites that got chariots of iron. Well, I mean, if you read the first, you know, 13 chapters of Joshua, you know, it's no problem. God can do it if they had a willing, submissive heart. But see, the issue is faith and not logistics, and not war planning, and not military strategy, and not number of soldiers. Saw that time and again in Joshua. The issue is their heart. And if their heart was not there to 
cling to God's promises, to really hope in his word, then of course they were going to fall short because their highest desire was not to honor the Lord or to um, lay hold of his promises, but it was, well, you know, this, uh, I, I don't know if it was laziness. I don't know it was, if it was fear, whichever it was for Manasseh. Um, they failed to do uh, what was right in the eyes of God. And, you know, there, I, I think, as, as, especially as I've been going through Joshua, there's definitely been a rebuke of my own heart um, that at times you can believe so much in the sovereignty of God that he's in control of everything that you just don't do anything. Or you, you presume upon the grace of God so much that you willfully disobey, knowing that, you know, if, you know, of course no one's perfectly obeying God, but God is gracious. He's going he's gonna to bless us anyway. But see, when you presume upon that, that is a, that is a very deliberate kind of sin. That's not a, a sin of, I, I tried and I just fell short, God, help me. That is to say that I'm going to intentionally fail and expect you, God, to do good for me, though I am actively spitting in your face. Now, can God in his sovereignty accomplish his purpose, even if we're actively trying to undermine him? Well, yeah, he's God. He's stronger even than our disobedience. But that doesn't put our heart in a very good place. And to be honest, most of the times, many times, God's divine promise is the motivation for our obedience. Just like with these daughters, the divine promise of the land was the motivation for them to obey, to go to the leadership. It's not an excuse for laziness or fear that God has promised or that God is sovereign And so here in this case, again, as we've said before, they end up paying a price for this. I mean, centuries of falling into this snare of worshiping these false idols and false gods, bringing them to the place where they are the ones enslaved. They are the ones that are suffering under the heavy hand of God when it could have been avoided. Now, there is grace. There's always grace. God is long-suffering and kind and patient. But we ought not to presume upon it. Today is the day of salvation. We we never should assume that I'll get to repenting or confessing of my sin later. I mean, I know God's gracious. I know that at any time I repent, I'll do it later. No, now is the time to be right with the Lord. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, God's grace is not to be presumed upon, but laid hold of. It's not to be ignored so they can sin more, but rather it is a very promise that uh, if we turn to him at any time of our life, no matter the depths of your sin, he will forgive. It's exactly the reason that Jesus Christ died on the cross is to offer this grace. As Romans says, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Of course, there's grace. But if you continue to presume You might be in for a world of suffering, maybe not centuries of suffering like the Israelites, but you may find yourself in a position to be enslaved by your sins and in a a much worse place, hurting yourself, hurting others. And ultimately, if you're someone who continually ignores grace, presumes upon God grace, you are perhaps not even a child of God at all. Because how can you, who have the spirit of God in you, continue to... um, 
indulge in the deeds of the flesh. And so there's a warning here in these chapters for Israel that we ought to take to heart as well, that we ought to be careful about the kinds of sins that we kind of give a pass to. Um, And we likely know what that is. But if you don't know what that is, you can pray like the psalmist to reveal even those hidden sins to us. Keep my way from hidden faults. So if that's your prayer today, then pray that. If you know that there's some pet sin, like the Canaanites just lurking around in your heart, they're saying, well, I'll get to that later. Um, Ask the Lord for the strength to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, Again, it's just interesting passages when you talk a a lot about boundaries and and tribes and the names of all these people who've gone on uh, before. But we thank you for the rigorous record that these are historical facts that you would record for us, even the failures of Israel. Um, They're right in black and white that your word is not just uh, painting a picture that everything is fine and good all the time, but that it's very honest about the failures of even the so-called people of God. So, Lord, there's something uh, of a relief there, knowing that um, maybe we can't be perfect either, but also a goad to not indulge in sin ourselves. And so, Lord, if there's anything that we're keeping from you or from others, if there's any pet sin that uh, we've got um, kind of um, tucked away in a corner and, and we think we have under control, Lord, reveal it to us. What a dangerous prayer, just thinking about that. What a dangerous prayer. But just show us what that is so that we might bring it to the cross and seek forgiveness there. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that you will forgive, that Jesus' blood guarantees that there is a place uh, for us to come humbly and say, Lord, uh, take away my sin. Give me a, a new heart that seeks righteousness. Thank you for that hope. We pray, Lord, for our time together as we um, gather around the table to eat dinner. I, I pray, Lord, that it'd be a blessing to our souls. It wouldn't just be physical nourishment, but also spiritual nourishment as well. And uh, Lord, give us uh, grace to, um, to eat and drink to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.